a Sabbath. The Lord has truly, truly been awesome to us this week. We are back here with you this Sabbath, worshiping him in spirit and in truth, asking him for his continual outpouring of his goodness. I just want to take a few moments this morning. We are blessed. We are highly favored. We have with us um, Sister Pamela Cerise. Many of you are familiar with her work that she has placed herself before the Lord. He has been kind. He has been good. He has spoken to and through her. And so Sister Cerise, thank you so much for being with us this Sabbath morning. And we also have with us chapter, or Dr. Jason O'Rourke, who served um, here in Florida, um, Netherlands, and he is currently um, serving over in um, Texas, I'm sorry, in Colorado, I apologize, as a director of mission integration and spiritual care at Littleton Adventist Hospital in Colorado. For those of you who have heard um, our dear Dr. O'Rourke, you know already and are quite aware that he is a profound mind. Um, he is one of those individuals who, when you speak with him, your head may hurt, but your heart will be on fire. Okay. Um, he is just one of those guys. He goes deep, but he goes deep into the love of Jesus and unfolds some of the mysteries of the gospel. And I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. I want to just dive right in because I don't want to take up too much time um, with introductions, but I'm asking all of you who are viewing, please um, send your comments, um, posts. Um, thank you so much, Sister Hines. Um, you are visiting from Ontario, and I know that you all, you are um, not experiencing sunshine like we are down here in um, Delray, uh, South Florida, we recognize that um, you are experiencing sunshine of the Lord today. So thank you so much, Mr. Hines, for uh, worshiping with us this Sabbath and for doing exactly what we want everyone else to do. Send your comments, participate um, with this lesson study and share it. Uh, you know, subscribe, share, like all those things to encourage others to experience the joy of the Lord with us. So this week we are dealing with something that was um, just profound in the lesson study of lesson seven, and it is law and grace. And so before we get started, I want to just have a word of prayer as we get ready to dive into this lesson study for the week. We're praying, Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. I'm asking now, dear Lord, that you will speak to us, that you will reveal, dear Lord, the mysteries of the gospel, and dear God, that we will be drawn closer to you to pull others and point them to you as well. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen and amen. This lesson deals with law and grace. And oftentimes we have found in the Christian experience that there is a tension, if you will, with law and grace. It's almost as though if you speak of law, don't bring up grace. If you speak of grace, you don't want to talk about law. But I love the fact that this week we are going to reconcile and deal with both of these themes, if you will, um, from the book of Deuteronomy and other places as well throughout scripture. Our scripture focus came from Galatians chapter two, verse 21. I'm gonna read that here. It says, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Paul wrote that, Paul said that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I wanna talk a little bit about law in heaven because we oftentimes think about law and we just kind of, we limit it to Mount Sinai, right? In, in the book of Exodus. But I wanna talk a little bit about law in heaven and it brings us to this scripture that we find in Ezekiel chapter 28. And I want to ask this question. And again, I'm going to start with Sister Cerise. I want to have you just, if you could, help us to unpack or, or just reveal why was it or how was iniquity found in Lucifer? How did that happen? How did they find iniquity 
in Lucifer. Sister Cerise. Uh, good morning, everyone. I, I like the question, how it is presented, simply because um, it should resound with us in that where Lucifer was. So Lucifer's iniquity was found in his heart. And I think very often we might tend to think that because iniquity isn't seen on the outside, that we're free and clear. So in coveting, in his heart, that is where Lucifer, um, his iniquity and his sin was found. Um, that made me think we have to be careful of our thoughts. We have to be careful of what we harbor in our heart and what it, it propels us to actually do. So for me, it is this, this, this should be a warning for us or um, a, a light should, a bulb should go off to let us remember it, it was in his heart. And, and, and he, he, he acted upon what was in his heart and, and in his mind, being covetous and, and being jealous and, 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 and thinking that he could get beyond where, what he was made, what his calling was. Amen, amen. I'm going to ask the good doctor if you can come on over as well. Thanks so much, Sister Reese, for that. And I want you, if you could, um, Jason, just help us through that. You know, how was iniquity found in Lucifer? Um, well, according to the text in Ezekiel, um, Lucifer had a he he had a pride problem. And that's and it was he was created. He was the most perfect creature in the universe. He looked beautiful. He was the most powerful created being in the universe. And he developed a pride problem. He developed a pride problem. That was his own issue. That's what Ezekiel says. Um, and, so, and, you, and he was, he was, if I'm, if I turn to it, it says, um, talks about how beautiful he was. You were perfect until iniquity was, he was all, all of his glory made him proud. And from his pride, we can now turn to the coveting position, um, from Isaiah, but I believe it's 14, but I could have it wrong where it says, um, I will ascend and be like the most high. Um, I will be the most high. So his pride, he, he felt more about himself. And then he looked at God and said, okay, I'm going to be that, you know? So it started from the internal, um, over, I don't hype, hyper valuing, if I may, or, you know, when you, when you, it's not that self value is a problem, but when you think more of yourself than you actually are, and then you aspire to something that is not designed for you, right? You begin to covet who or whatever is over there. And that is where it started. Pride was the beginning for him. Amen, amen. I, so, and what I'm hearing um, from both of you, um, interestingly enough, is that there's something inside, you know, it's something that God, a gift that God gave that began, and as Sister Cerise put it, in the heart. And then, um, Jason, you've gone, and, and talked about the fact that the overvaluing of the gift, where you start to ascribe the gift to yourself as opposed to the gift giver. One of the things that I find interesting is we deal with this passage of scripture from the standpoint of law and grace and determining how iniquity was found is that 
we would have to accept that there had to have been some type of a rubric or some type of a standard that Satan, formerly known as Lucifer, um, this, this, this covering cherub, this light bearer, that he breached or that he broke. And so, again, you know, we kind of get trapped into believing that these, the law was founded and started and initiated at, at Sinai. But in order for iniquity to be found in Lucifer, dealing with a fair and upright God and a righteous God, there had to have been something in place. And so I wanted to spend a little a moment here. What type of sin, if we even looking at the Ten Commandments, the character kind of, you know, written, um, written out in, in, in words on the, ten, uh, on the two tables of stone, looking at the character of God, what commandments can we say when this iniquity was found in Lucifer and he ascribed to be um, like the most high? He, he's, you know, as we found that in the text you just read a few moments ago, what was being broken? I mean, you know, was this a honor thy father and thy mother? Was this a thou shalt not steal? Was this a remember the seventh day to keep the holy? What are we looking at as it relates to possibly this kind of attributing some of those commandments that were um, potentially broken by Lucifer when the iniquity was found? I mean, do we see this thou shalt have no other gods before you and kind of lifting yourself up? Um, and I think if you if we consider that, we can find that this idea, and I'm going to just, I want to roll to this question as we considering this. What role or function does the law fulfill in heaven? Because, again, the law as presented at Sinai is not the beginning, if you will, of the law. That is not the first, um, first time law comes into existence. Law was there, but God is now introducing himself. To the children of Israel, and I want to just go very quickly. Um, Sister Hines was answering a question from earlier. I, you know, talking about law and grace, you can't have one without the other. We're going to come to that later on as well in the discussion. Um, and we see here that um, she answers the question, "Thou shalt have no other god before me." And Satan wanted what worship. So again, dealing with those ideas of um, of, of commandments and, and those things that are um, being broken. Our brother Mark. So it seems that Lucifer's fall was the earliest example of what happens when we allow the eyes of our spirit to wander away from the throne, and, and um, capital T there, thus interfering with the Holy Spirit he and others receive. So, I mean, sorry, the Holy Signal he and others receive. So, again, um, the idea of self and self-exaltation. But I want to talk a little bit about, you know, Sunday's lesson dealt with law in heaven, and I want to deal with what role or function does the law fulfill in heaven. And I want to ask this Cerise for your thoughts on that as it relates to the law in heaven and what that fulfills. I, I would say, Jason, that the law in heaven sets parameters. It gives knowledge. It tells you the, the should and should not, the what and what not that is required. Even though, can you imagine that the, the, the heavenly body and the angels, God is still God and he's still the most high and he's still the one in charge, so to speak. So I would say that the law serves as, as knowledge for, for the angels before, like you say, before Mount, Mount Sinai. So it sets the parameters, it gives them knowledge and to, to let them know their role in, in the bigger scheme of things. I would, I would say that that is what the role is. 
Amen. Thank you so much, Sister Reese. And I'm going to ask um, Dr. O'Rourke if you can help us out here as it relates to the role and function. Thanks so much, Sister Washington. Um, Lucifer was covered to us, and you're exactly right. That's exactly what happened. Um, and bless Sabbath you as well. But again, dealing with this idea of the role and function um, that the law fulfills in heaven. Um, Dr., if you can help us out a little bit on that. Excuse me. I, I think that it's good to um, for us to, to not assume what law we're talking about. Um, in the Bible, there are multiple laws discussed. Um, you have moral laws, you have ceremonial laws, you have legal laws, you have natural laws, right? And all of them, from a universal standpoint, are created by God. The Ten Commandments, in the formulation that we have them, come to us at Sinai. That we can just say that as at, at the codified body as we have them. Um, and yet, if I can just describe something, when the Bible says it's funny, when you read the Bible, the Bible says in Ezekiel, Thou sealest, you were the anointed cherub who covers. And it's very interesting. It says, You were the anointed cherub who covers. This is unique because we have this picture of two cherubim, but Ezekiel says, You were the one. And if you can envision this, Lucifer, the, 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 the throne is, is housed by, by God, and Lucifer hovers above him. He is the covering for God, which means he is irradiated by the glory of God. And anytime he leaves the throne, he is reflecting and irradiating what he has received. So he suddenly begins to think that this stuff comes from himself. And he aspires, instead of to be the covering cherub, to be the God on the throne. Now, here's where, this is the law according to Jude that he and his, his fellows broke. The Bible says in the book of Jude, um, in Jude um, chapter one, verse six, that the angels who left not their first estate, they left their first estate. Literally, you left your first position, your first, your primary role, position, and location. So they not only broke a legal law, they broke their natural law, right? They were designed for this location. And so in leaving their first estate, they have broken a natural law, right? Not just a ceremonial, not just a moral. And so from, from, from God's standpoint for the angels, it is immoral for them to do what is unnatural that he created them for, right? Not only is it illegal, but it is immoral for them to move into an unnatural space, right? And considering that God has created all of life, it's not even, it's not even an issue of I'm going to punish you, it's I created you for here, which means your existence is found in fulfilling the position that I created you for. So when we go against what is natural and we go against what is legal and we go against what is moral, we have gone against existence. And I think we need to just kind of grasp, get, kind of wrestle with that, the, the, the all-encompassing interconnected nature, you know, so we could say, you know, what law did, did they break? They broke all of them. Uh, if we look at the Ten Commandments, they broke every single one. Every single one they broke, right? Every single one. But... And, and what Jude says is that there was a pride issue, 
There was a coveting issue in Isaiah. No, no, Ezekiel says cried. Isaiah says coveting. And Jude says you left your original location for existence. So that, so, I mean, it, it's the law, the structure, because we have to be very careful the way Paul uses law. The structure of existence, the way God designed existence is how existence continues. And so when you go against the way God designed it, you go against your own existence. Now, if we want to call that law, that's fine. The law of gravity. I have scissors in my hand. I throw them up. They come down. They just hit the floor. Right? If they stayed in the air, something's wrong with the law of gravity. Like, there's a problem. You, you see what I'm saying? You know, so we, 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 don't, we don't need, we don't, we, we, can, we, can, we can postpone the Sinai morality conversation until we just deal with, with the interconnected nature of all the laws as a part of how God structured existence. Amen, amen. And um, we like your scissors, number one, but I don't believe they belong to you. Um, <laughs> but I, I think one of the things I like is the fact that as you present that, we are looking at the idea of how iniquity was found in, in Lucifer it was found because there had to be law. Law revealed the iniquity. Law revealed the sin. And so the, 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 the very thing that Lucifer was doing, thinking, experiencing, and living, the law is what brought that to the forefront or, or revealed that thing um, as well. And I love the idea of the natural law because if nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and all these other gases begin to not function within the law space that God created them and they gave them their purpose for, we would just literally poof. And that's the idea of God's creative power and his law. Sister Washington said it, that's deep. It just covers a lot of things. And so thank you so much um, for, for um, bringing that out. I want to talk a little bit about law in Deuteronomy, law in Deuteronomy. And I, and I want to talk about how Moses is presenting the law to the children of Israel. Again, the reminders as they get ready to enter into the promised land, those reminders. And so, um, Moses, I, I want to ask this question here. I'm going to start with you, Sister Therese, in this regard. Why was obedience to law a focal point of Moses' admonishment to the children of Israel? And I'm coming to you, Sister Therese, in the vein of not only your love for Jesus, but also as a um, educator, and also as a mother, also as a grandmother, dealing with the word obedience. I, I suspect you're familiar with that, right? And so I want to talk a little bit about Moses and his role and why he had the focal point as it relates to the obedience to the law in his admonishment and almost, you know, if I may, in his leading up to his final admonishment to the children of Israel. Because, uh, Jason, like you said, children, us being kids, we have to be reminded again and again. And you you do it as well. I think most parents do it. You remember to tell them, don't remember, don't do this. Re remember, don't do that. And sometimes we have to reinforce it um, in, a, in a different way. And we have to remind them of what can happen when you do not obey. When you disobey, this is what what could happen, what can happen. So I think that Moses re, re, was merely trying to remind them, to reinforce them of what has to happen. Remember, they were they they had already started their journey. 
they had already seen some some trials they have already seen some good points as well but still knowing who we are and how we falter how we stumble very often we have to be reminded that at the core at at, at, at the soul of of our of our desire is to most of all obey god's law obedience is key and we we we're going to get to this and it is not so much of as a consequence that you want to remind them of, but to remind them of the, the importance and the end result when you do as you were told. Um, it, it, um, it, it, it keeps us from a lot of heartache and a lot of heartbreak as long as we remember to remain obedient. So I believe Moses too, he wanted to remind, because, um, I, I believe Moses kept the end result in mind and he wanted what was best. He knew God's purpose. He knew God's reasoning and realizing that the children, as they were traveling, um, they would they, they would have their doubts. I mean, they, they've been traveling, they've been coming and so easily, just like us, so easily we get disheartened and just so easily we get discouraged. And I believe Moses just wanted to remind them so that they could so that they could win. And the end result, you know, you be obedient, you can win. Amen. I'm sorry, Jason. Did you see what sister did? If you can't I'm, hear, I'm looking at right now, and I, you know, that's that's some you good feel, stuff. right? Definitely, <laughs> Sophia Bailey. Thank you so much. If you can't hear, you must feel. And so I think um, we all get that, and we know that, and so. Um, definitely trying to admonish the children of Israel to hear and listen so they wouldn't have to feel. Thank you so much for that. Um, Jason, I want to ask you to come over if you can um, and treat that for us a little bit. Um, what is the reason why Moses focusing on this so heavily? I agree with a uh, good sister. And I, I want to add a little broader context if I can. If you read Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8 talks about the need for a new covenant because the first covenant is faulty. It says there's a flaw in the first covenant. And when you read the, the Hebrews eight, it says God found fault with the people. It says the new covenant is established on better promises. That means the old covenant is established on faulty promises. Now we know that God does not make a bad promise, which means somebody else was promising in the old covenant, right? That should not have, okay? Back, let me back up very, no, let me not. Let me do it this way. I'm not going to be long. If you read Genesis 15, this is the Abrahamic covenant, okay? The Abrahamic covenant, God says, I'm going to make you like stars in the sky. Abraham says, thank you. How do I know I'm going to get it? Covenant signing ceremony is about to happen. And what they would do back in the day, is called a suzerainty covenant. What they would do is that if, if Jason or the good sister is the Lord or the queen, right? Then I'm the shoe shine guy. And I promise to shine your shoes and you, you covenant with me, you will take care of me, protect me and feed me. But the deal is that I have to walk through a path of blood. And what Abraham does, this 15, God tells him, get me these animals. He cuts them in half and they draw, they, they drain into it, into it, into a pit. Historically and contextually, Abraham should have passed through the blood, meaning if I don't shine your shoes, you can kill me. If I don't do it right, you can kill me. 
Okay, here's the problem. In Genesis 15, God put Abraham to sleep. So Abraham did not sign his name on the dotted line. Okay, he didn't. And when you read the bottom of 15, a smoking furnace and a burning torch pass through the pieces. Our God is a consuming fire. The smoking furnace is the part of God you cannot approach. And the burning torch is the part of God that incarnated and came out to have a conversation with us. And so God made a deal with God on pain of God's existence to make Abraham a great nation. Why is this important? Because that means that Abraham is not punitively responsible for producing the seed. I'm coming to the question. And, right, and that, now this is interesting because when you read Genesis 26, God speaking to Isaac says, I will take care of you because Abraham kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. One, there's no law obviously given to Abraham. And two, we know he handed his wife out to two other men twice to save his own neck. So he's clearly a lawbreaker. But we don't see him divinely punished. In fact, God has dinner with him, and then they haggle about 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 Sodom. How many people are you going to save? He talks to, to listen. Stay with me. There's something wrong with the old covenant. Isaac is not punitively punished for handing his wife out once. Jacob is not divinely punished for manipulating his brother, deceiving his father, or doing voodoo with the sheep. He's not divinely punished. Joseph is not divinely punished for attempting to help God make him greater than his brothers and sisters twice. He did it by telling them the dreams, and then he tried to recommend himself to Pharaoh to get out of jail. None of them received divine punishment. You don't see it. You see divine punishment in three places prior to Exodus, three. You see it in Sodom and Gomorrah, you see it at the flood, and you see people getting kicked out of the garden. That's it. Then you come to Exodus 19. And it says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. I bore you out on eagle's wings, brought you to myself. Now, therefore, and here's the problem. I'm, I'm coming to your question on Deuteronomy. If you obey my voice indeed. Now, before you can obey a voice, you have to know a voice. So it's an invitation to relationship before obedience. Then he says, he says you obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant. Which covenant are they supposed to keep? It implies, Jason, that they already have it. They're supposed to be keep the covenant he gave to Abraham, which was a one directional covenant. There was no expectations placed on Abraham at all. None. You can't find it. You can't find it. There's no there's no law placed on him at all. Right. None on Jacob or Isaac. Keep this one directional grace covenant. Let me do my job. You'll be peculiar above everybody else because nobody else is letting me do it. Then he says this. You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the whole kingdom is supposed to be priests, not just Levites. The people said at the end of that, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Now, that's a problem. He didn't ask you to do anything. He asked you to receive. God spells out holiness in Genesis 20, 21, 22, and 23. 24, he says, tell the people what I said. All that the Lord has said, we will do. Okay, fine. Now, you know what you're promising. You're promising you can be holy. They do the whole covenant signing ceremony. They get the leaders of the tribes behind the pillars, the standards of the tribes. So the leaders represent the whole nation. Moses takes the blood, splashes it on the altar, takes some blood, put it in a bucket. And they say it again. All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. At that point, Moses splashes the blood on the people. 
which means they are now on pain of death responsible for obedience in a post-fall world. They are responsible themselves for producing the righteousness of the Ten Commandments. Actually, 600 and some, honestly. We only focus on 10. We're minimalists. Right? Now watch. Now watch. So now watch this. Everything after Exodus is punishment. Literally 40 days later, God's about to wipe them out for breaking their rule. And, and Moses says, wait, we messed up our deal, but you made a deal with grandpa. So when Moses comes to Deuteronomy, he's reminding them, yes, it pays. It pays. Sure, it pays. You know, as the sister said, if you don't, it pays to follow the will of uh, 100%. But why? Because you signed the deal. You made a deal with God your ancestors didn't make. You made a promise to God on pain of death. So now watch this. Your blessings are contingent upon your obedience. Your punishment is contingent upon your obedience. You do not find that, any of that, with Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. You don't find it. In fact, they're blessed multiple. When Abraham handed his wife to Abimelech, God punishes Abimelech, and Abimelech didn't know it was the man's wife. Abimelech says, Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't know. So then God says, God says, that's all right. Give her back to her husband. Look, look at this now. Check this out, sis. God says, he's a prophet. That would have got somebody killed after Exodus. But in Genesis, the covenant is different. The covenant is entirely different. It's not contingent upon Abraham. When Abraham is blessed, even though he's a rank sinner. Jacob is the worst of all of them, and he receives the blessing and the birthright. They are not punitively punished, but Moses must remind the people, you made a deal. You claim you can do what God wants, and this is going to cost you. So I'm setting before you life and death. Here's your blessings and your curses. I hope you choose rightly. Powerful, powerful sermonette. We appreciate um, the word, but you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, you guys said you would do this. You made this um, decision. But I love the fact that you brought up the fact that Paul said um, it wasn't on a good promise. Not God. Just wasn't on a good promise. You just didn't do what you said you would do. So, again, that focal point, the obedience to the law. Thank you so much. Um, just, just a powerful revelation of what God is and who God is and how God is. He puts us to sleep while he goes to work. Isn't that something? He puts us to sleep while he goes to work. Good stuff. So dealing with this, this idea of law and grace and continuing on, I want to ask this question. A few, um, a few weeks back, we literally discussed in our broadcast the if-then clause found in John chapter 14, right? John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus makes this comment. He says, if you love me, then keep my commandments. If you love me, we kind of dealt with that a little bit, but I want to ask the question, is this the same messaging that we're finding in Deuteronomy? The if then, um, as Jesus discussed, if you love me, um, keep my commandments. Are we finding that same messaging in Deuteronomy? Sister Cerise, what's your thoughts on that? Um, I see it as a no. Because in Deuteronomy, we are reading about where they are coming from, again, what they have been through. And in Deuteronomy, it is 
it is meant, it is for me, it is seen more as a reminder of the ups and downs. This is a reminder of when you are faithful, when you are obedient. Um, we are reminded of keeping, keeping the word and the 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 faithfulness of God for 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 keeping the word. So I I believe that in Deuteronomy it is it is presented more as a reminder of the chances that we are given time and time again. We are constantly reminded this is this is where you've come. This is what you have seen. You you need to just focus on being obedient to bring it from from within you and look you're reminded of the chances that you got so in this context as it is presented in in Deuteronomy I see it as just a reminder just to remind the children it's not really like, it's still a, if you do this then you get this or then you get this if you get this but in Deuteronomy, I believe the message is more of a reminder and a reinforcement for the children of Israel. Amen. You know, one of the things I love is that he continually brings them back to how they got where they are and where God is trying to bring them. Continual reminders in Deuteronomy is as Moses spends time, I mean, painstaking time all throughout. We find in chapter four, we find in chapter 30, chapter 32. Um, so, uh, uh, Dr. O'Rourke, if you would, please um, expound on this um, idea of if you love me, then keep my commandments. Do we see that same messaging in Deuteronomy as well, in your opinion? I think that um, <clears throat> so Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your might. Right? And then it goes on to expound on the rest of the things that for the rest of the Deuteronomy. So, you know, I, I, let me let me say this. God is always aiming for love. The foundation of God's existence is love. Of all the omnis that God has, omnibenevolence is the source of everything else, right? So God is always looking for a love relationship. Um, so and so, and He wants to be close to His people. So as soon as as the people make the mistake in Exodus twenty four and they get splashed with the blood, immediately in the very next chapter you see, let them make me a sanctuary, so at least I can be in the neighborhood, right? At least let me be around. You know, so if they don't want to get get down with me too close, I'll be in this building over here right around the corner. You know, so he's always looking for that. And I I am of the belief that Jesus picks up on this verse because he says it elsewhere. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. So even then, when Jesus says, if you love me, um, and I believe this John uh, John, John 15, no, John 14, 15. So one of those places you just said, I had it about a minute ago, but he, what he's, Jesus is always reaching back to the old Testament to reframe it. He always does. Good illustration is the sermon on the Mount. The sermon on the Mount is the retelling of Sinai, but instead of 10 commandments, he gives you 10 blessings, right? So, I mean, he, he's reframing everything. He even expands the law. He says, listen, um, the law, which, by the way, during the time of Jesus, they had 1,520 laws for the Sabbath alone, right? So he says, if you think you're going to do this by works, you got to do better than the Pharisees, 1,520. And if you hate your brother in your heart, it's as guilty as murder. And if you look at somebody, it's as guilty as actually committing adultery. And he continues to expand the law, 
right? He's, but he, he does it within the framework of thou shalt love the Lord thy God, right? Right? And so what, 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 why? Why is this the point? Why is it the point? Because Israel never got it. They never did. They were so law focused. They were so law focused. And Jesus is like, no, I need you to be person focused. So let me expand this law to encompass your motives, your thoughts, you know, your feelings, etc., so that you can understand that you cannot keep it. You actually don't have it within you to do what you're promising and what you're attempting. So I need you to love me. I need you to love me and let love make its changes. You know, so that that's that's how I would answer that question. I hope that that suffices. It, it certainly does. And I think part of this this um, discussion just comes back to the idea you talked about God's omni benevolence and, and just that that's the foundation of God, his love. And so there's a mystery of God's love. There's just a mystery in God's love. Um, and so we will spend time discussing it. But what will truly uncover it. We're going to spend eternity um, dealing with the love aspects of God. And so. Um, and by his grace, we'll all be there. I want to talk about this love thing. Sister Cerise, can love be commanded? Can God command your love? Uh, absolutely not. It cannot, it cannot be commanded. It has to come from within. You have to want to. You have to love just because. Uh, we do it as, 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 as we are, as individuals as we are, and we have partners and, and spouses and, and even our children. We love our children just because we look at them and our hearts melt and we want to go and please them just because we love them so much. So no, you can't come. If, if, if we, if we, this is how I was thinking about this, Jason, and I was thinking, you know, we have to understand how much and how enormous God's love is. God died for everybody, everybody, regardless of where you are. Now, if I were to say, Jason, can you please go to, you know where those homeless people are that hang out and you spread the word. Are you going to go wholeheartedly because of love and you want to spread God's message of his love? You're going to want to cherry pick who you spread God's word to. God didn't cherry pick who he died for. That that is 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 the love that that I imagine that he is looking for. We like um uh doctor said um we we can strive for it as much as we can but you cannot command that love that God is 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 looking for. You just can't. You have to have it from within. You have to pull it out from deep in your soul, and and know you. And we have to be mindful. Are we doing it because we're looking for something in return? Do we feel that we, if I show love, then He has to do this to me, for me or with me? No, we can't command that love. You have to pull it out from deep in it, in, inside of you. Amen. Amen. Sister Hines. Um, she says he can, however, it's, it, he can, however, it's not true love. Love is voluntary and freely given. And so um, just a beautiful point. Um, Jason, I'm going to come to you very quickly, but I, I want to move into Wednesday. and I want to talk about the um, law of grace. And so I want to see if you can, um, Jason, if you can deal with this idea of commanding love and motivation for um, um, of our obedience. But more, I, I want you to, if you could, hone in on 
the idea of what is the law of grace? Because I think it kind of it, it will encapsulate um, some of that. Um, if you would, please. Right. So <clears throat> biblically, love is um, the biblical love of God, uh, as, as it is described in the test is agape. Um, and so when you think of God, the Bible says in John, first John, God is love, which means God's being is love. And it's agape. It's the mutual sacrificial benevolence and and giving back and forth between two entities, which means if God is love, then God is relational within God's self. God must be relational. If God is relational within God's self, then God must be plural because God is relational and a relationship demands to have love and it demands to have plurality. You cannot be, it's not, I'm, I'm an entity singular. So I cannot be love. I can have love. But if I'm an entity that happens to be plural, then I have the ability to be love because the act of loving is going between myself. Don't try and understand it. That's the mystery of God. And if God is love, then God is free. God is free to accept, free to reject, free to give, free to withhold. And God from love created the universe for love. Right? That's what he did. But because of what love is, it cannot be commanded. It cannot be demanded. It can only be requested. And you can do your best to draw it out by acts of love. But it cannot be legaled. You can't legislate it. Right? It's not possible. Right? So now when you think about the law of grace, you think about all. So again, what is grace? Grace, the definition is unmerited favor. Right. Unmerited, unmerited favor. I'm doing good for you because I want to, because I value you. Then watch this. Favor is value where there does not need to be. I don't it doesn't mean you're it doesn't mean you deserve my favor. It means I give it. So favor is not earned. Right. Favor is bestowed. So now when we look at, 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 at sin, what sin has done to humanity, we were created from grace, right? I mean, we were created from grace. It was grace that brought us into existence. We're going to make humanity in our image. It's not like the dirt looked good enough to be made in the image of God. That's not what happened. It's not like the breath said, hey, breathe me now. That didn't happen. Like you don't deserve to exist. Grace created you. Grace is one directional action from God. And all you can do as a substance is receive it. The moment God breathes life into you, he gives you the freedom to continue receiving or rejecting. We initially with our ancestors chose to reject it and tried to be to do it ourselves. So now the wages of sin is non-existence. The wages of sin is non-existence, but there is a thing called the plan of salvation, dun, dun, dun. here it comes, right? And so now humanity exists in a bubble of grace within which we draw life from grace and from grace we commit sins. Think about that. Grace gives us existence and we sin through the power of life that is graciously given to us because God said, I'm going to give them a chance and I will send and Jesus will come and he will pay for all the mistakes. 
He'll pay for all the mistakes, all the sins, all the you aimed and you missed, and then you turn around and rebel. We'll pay for it all. And then he will ascend. The Bible says if Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. So his life pays for all the past mistakes, his death. His death pays for the past mistakes, and then he ascends. And here you go. Why does he ascend? Because we need him to keep living. Why do we need him to keep living? Because he's taken to Adam's place. And he's taken to Adam's place as now the head of humanity. And so now we need a life of holiness extended to us. Because we got a life of, we inherited a life of sin from Adam. Now we get extended to us the living life of Jesus. And so this is what you see in Ephesians. Ephesians places us in chapter one. He just starts us off. You're blessed. And because you're blessed, let's address some other issues that, I, that, that, that are not in Jesus. But he starts you off blessed. He starts you off saved. He starts you off graced. He starts you off sealed in, in Ephesians chapter one. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. Right. He starts you sealed. And then he says we need to stop being ethnocentric and we need to stop being sexist and we should probably stop being classist and we should stop being generationalist. We should probably stop thinking that the older are better than the younger and vice versa. He addresses all those from the position of you are already in Christ. So watch this. I'm done. I quit. He says this since this is the idea since you're saved. This is what saved looks like. Notice it doesn't say to be saved, change these behaviors. No, 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 no. Since you're saved, this is what it looks like. And now I'm going to walk it through you. I'm going to walk it out with you for the rest of your life. I'm going to walk this out with you. That's what it says, right? Same thing with Jesus. If you love me, you can, and if in the, in the Greek can be if or since. So it can be since you love me, this is what it looks like. And he spends the rest of our lives teaching us what it looks like to love him. What love looks like lived out. But it's predicated not, help me, Lord, Holy Ghost. It's predicated not on a law written on stone, but uh, the law as it is personified in a person. So I'm not comparing myself or measuring myself or relating to stones that are inanimate animate objects that don't love me back. I'm relating myself to the Christ who is the author of what was written on the stones. You see? And so now, so watch this, the law, just watch this. So when Jesus comes at, at my good sister and he comes at Jason, we have two different backgrounds. She's an educator. I'm a chaplain. She's a woman. I'm a man. She has glasses on. I don't. She has hair. I don't. There's a host of things that are different. Watch this. God is entirely just in his justice. Yes. He's also entirely merciful, which means when he considers me and the sister, the principles he measures us against remain the same, that being his son. But he also takes into account the context. What does she have access to that I don't? What did I get the privilege of knowing that she didn't? What happened to me that debilitates me more than the next person? And he places Christ on all of it for those that accept. You see that? And so now, since so because the law of grace, <laughs> 
on one hand, it's the the great the of grace can be an of of ownership. Grace owns the law. It's grace's law. Right? The other thing it could be is it could be saying that the law is grace. You see, you see how that works, right? The law is grace. The new, the law now is not punitive, but gracious. Grace owns the law. Does that, does that mean? I, I rest. I quit. We don't want you to quit. We don't want you to rest, but we're going to move very quickly. Sister Cerise, I want to see if you can give us just very quickly. I know the time is upon us. Um, I know our viewers want more. Um, if you can provide an example of the relationship between law and grace, if you could just give us a, a practical, real-life example of the relationship between law and grace. We've heard the, the, um, the, 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 the breaking um, down of, of the, the, the interworkings of law and grace. We can just give an example of that relationship for us as we get close to our close. I believe that we are all living examples, all living examples day by day, um, because we that this is this is what we do. Like Dr. O'Rourke was saying, if is is I love how he placed it is that because of this, this is what it looks like. And God is willing to forgive us every time, pick us up every time individually. We are all living examples of the, because of God's graciousness to us, Jason. Amen. 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 Um, I, I know there's some more meat on this bone and I, I want to keep eating. Um, we are at the 1050 mark. I just want to um, just just you know thank our facilitate our um, panelists um, for facilitating such an awesome discussion. I want to thank our viewers who um, presented and, and provided information um, and of just God's um, goodness through our chat and our comments. Um, continue subs um, to subscribe, please, if you would um, make sure that you um, share and and like our page as well. And I just want to say this, you know, we start out talking about the tension between law and grace, right? We start out talking about the fact that when you hear one group of individuals talk about the law, they don't discuss grace. When you hear one group of individuals talk about grace, they don't discuss the law and they feel as though they're mutually exclusive. But there is something that was said. And if I, I would be um, remiss if I left this broadcast today and didn't actually go through this uh, one more time. Law demanded grace. Grace needs law. In other words, there is this relationship that when you talk about of grace, law is there to say, hey, look, this is sin. Get away from that. That, that, that thing would destroy you. And I'm going to give you something. I'm going to provide something, a means for you to be able to get out of that thing. Grace, come help them. And grace says, yeah, yeah I'm going to help them. And grace um, and law, I'm going to help them achieve and, re and realize and live out that thing that will actually cause them to um, fulfill the very saving um, aspects of their lives, that they are in fact saved. And so grace and, and, and law and law and grace, they work together. So that relationship, you talked about Sister Reese, it is us as we breathe, as we walk, as we talk, as we exist, we are the example. And I, and I like to call it this, um, call it this, we are literally what? Gospel, we are good news. We, we represent the good news of Jesus Christ. And so let us be that everlasting um, good news as we broadcast to the world the kindness, the goodness, and the omnibenevolence. Can I use that, Jason? Am I right using that, doctor? Um, the omnibenevolence of God in that it wasn't the dirt. It was his love. 
And so we thank God for that. I want to thank our um our, our panelists once again, Sister Reese. Thank you so much for your contributions this morning. I know the souls are blessed. I, I'm already getting um feedback about um just people understanding and loving the the applicably applicable applicable nature of how you have presented the love of Christ. And um, Dr. Jason O'Rourke, I want to thank you as well for your contributions. You had to get up early this morning. Um, you came in and you you um you, you worked with us and and I want to thank you so much for your commitment and your love for God. Um I I, I just love um hallelujah yes sister Taylor you're absolutely right um and you know the beauty of what we're doing now in this um pandemic world that we are are now um, experiencing is we are now teaching law and grace and showing law and grace to the world and it's no longer just limited to our um our sabbath school classes in our sanctuaries um as we would kind of you know parse out in sanctuary in little sections we are now able to broadcast let the world know how good god is and as michael hannah has said here um good elder Praise God for the grace and law of God. Amazing discussion. I want to thank our um, panelists again. Thank you for all those who participated. And we are going to close out our lesson. I want to ask if everyone would please come back and join us at 11 a.m. I'm going to ask that you log back in. We are um, preparing an awesome celebration through worship with our dear um, guest speaker, um, Daniela Jean. Um, we will be dealing with the God factor, the God factor. And so I know that the Lord has something magnificent um, um, and, and planned for us. And so um, please come back in. You have enough time. You can actually grab a beverage and get some um, nice freshly squeezed orange juice from your um, from your kitchen. And you can grab some um, wonderful, um, um, some, some um, wheat crackers and, and come back and join us in, in a few moments online. And we are encouraging you to share with someone else and let them know that they can come in and spend some time in our worship experience here today. We thank you from Daughter Zion on behalf of our um, dear pastor, Pastor Leonard Newton. I want to let us know that we are broadcasting, but this is a big secret. Don't tell him. Um, I want to let you know that we are planning on having our pastor appreciation, pastor and family appreciation on the 27th of November. Um, so please, um, you know, lock, lock in your prayers for that, asking God to continue to just pour upon the minister who has been working here at Daughter Zion for so long and upon his family as well. If you so desire to express and give a, um, a love, a, a love gift, um, whatever it may be, we're asking more so for your prayer um, for the family. And um, if you want to contribute something, you still have time to do that. You can earmark that um, electronically as well or um, manually on the tithe envelope. We thank you. We're going to close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your mercy and for your love. We thank you, dear Lord, for law. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, dear Lord, for not requiring that we pass through. But dear Jesus, you prepared yourself a body to come and pass through it all for us. And you are living, dear Lord. And so we thank you for the idea that you give us the ability to live out law and grace daily. Lord, help us to live out, dear God, our true purpose that you set aside for us today. I thank you, dear God, for this discussion. And I pray to Lord, wherever it is broadcast, may it be received gladly by the power of your Holy Spirit. Move, I beg you, O Lord, and prepare us, dear God, for um, continual um, living that will please you day after day. We thank you as we get ready to celebrate you some more, dear Lord, through our worship service. Divide, I beg you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Be well, be blessed. We thank you, and we ask you to continue 
to spend time with us in our Sabbath school services, our worship services, and our midweek services as well. God bless you.